Hello, you're listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. Except, this week, Brie is overseas, and the minute she left the country, I got a man in. <laughs> it's time we hear from the fellas. <laughs> oh, God. No, but really, I brought in James Colley. Hi, hello, James. Hello. He's the author of The Next Big Thing. That's what it's called, The Next Big Thing. One of the most, if not the most genius title of a book that I've ever heard. It's released just this month. It's this beautiful, warm, funny, kooky rom-com. Like, it's kind of a bit genre-defying. I'm actually going to get to this in a second, in a few seconds, about how you define this book because I found it quite hard to categorise. But I loved it and Brie was away. We have a couple of author specials coming up and you were the... First person that I asked, and not just for nepotism reasons, i.e. you're my friend, because <laughs> I love this book and I, I, I've been busting to talk about it. But first up, before we get into the book, I love to open our author interviews mm-hmm. with three book recommendations mm-hmm. about when you're in a reading rut. Yes. What are three books to get you out of a reading rut? I'm actually in one at the moment. Oh, are you? Very unusual for me. The last two books I haven't been able to finish. Mm. So I'm asking with special keenness this yeah. week. So what are your three? What's the first one? Well, the first one I already recommended to you, which is uh, what we talk about when we talk about love, Raymond Carver, which I love because I find when you're in a rut, like you'll find a lot of my recommendations here. Uh, I need like a, a Labrador brain style treat after like of accomplishment after every piece. And these are like beautiful short stories. Some of them only go for a couple of pages and then you finish it. And firstly, you feel like, I made progress today, which I feel like a lot of the reading rut is you get, you know, 30 pages in, you're like, oh, when's this chapter going to end? I get it. Everyone in the family is miserable. (laughs) And then you like, but these are like beautiful short stories and like so efficient in the writing. Like, did you find that when it's coming through that like- So I've read that book on your recommendation. It's actually the last book that I finished Mm. during my reading reading rut. No, no, no. It was, I was in my reading rut. It was, I read that in like, two nights. Mm -hmm. Thought I was out of it, but no, I'm still in it. I was blown away and just absolutely devastated by some of the last sentences in those short stories. Like I can't believe what he pulls off with so few words. That's what what really got me from it. I feel like I can fall into this gap of thinking your prose has to be so exotic and, and wavering and beautiful. And so many of his sentences are like, the woman sat at the table. Yes. And like it's a simple, simple ideas, but the emotion of the scene builds from something else there. And it's just this really nice reminder to get out of your own way when you're writing, like just let your scene unfold. And you don't have to explain everything. Yes. Yeah, there's so Which much. Which I think is that. a trap you can fall into, especially in the first draft. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to explain how they got from the house to the school. Exactly, yeah. The reader will fill that in themselves. I actually got told in the process of this book to take out a lot of those chunks because it was like you were telling the story to yourself that I would put large chunks in that were all like, and she thought, should I do this or should I do this? I'm going to go with this one. And my editor very smartly said, maybe you should leave that out and we can guess as an audience, <laughs> which feels like fun. And did you read much about Raymond's life story after you finished the book? No. So I I know like for everyone else, this is a, yeah, obviously you should read this person. 
I was completely blind. Like, I feel very poorly read having not known Raymond Carver at all before this. This came from a recommendation. So you gave me a recommendation of James Salter, who I also hadn't heard of and adored. And then off the back of that, the comedian Josie Long told me, oh, if you enjoyed this, you have to check out Raymond Carver. And I've, it was one of those things you're like, oh, this, sorry, this didn't make it to Penrith. I never heard about it. <laughs> well, I no, I knew the name like a bit, but I knew nothing about him. And after I finished that book of short stories and was blown away, I just like looking up, you know, their yeah. life story. He was like an ordinary man with an ordinary job and an ordinary family life. I think he might have even, I, he might be wrong, he might have been a garbage man. But it's something like, very like it's it's something like that like an ordinary manual job he wrote a bit on the side but wasn't a writer until i think in his 30s or his 40s oh, like wow. he wasn't at college slaving away on this like he it seems like he's one of those completely natural gifted untrained writers I and love then that. yeah well and then well he did leave his wife <laughs> <laughs> and then, and, 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 See, and, that was a real baited switch. Yeah. You'll now throw me to the wolves of your yeah. audience. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he was with this second woman and he was like really productive when he was with her and then he died quite young. He was only writing for a really short, like professionally for a very, very oh. short time, which is also really interesting I considering the gift. Because like, you read those short stories and you're like, this is a man who was working on his craft, you know, for 30 years. Mm. But it wasn't. Because so many of these you see now that is like this person lectures at Yale and you're like, all right, fine. You're supposed yeah. to be good at this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And he was um, an ordinary person. I thought a lot about, wow, in his job and day-to-day life when he's working a nine to five, that is a person who is noticing everything. Yeah. It makes you think about the people in your life about who is the person who's actually noticing everything because I do not want to be perceived. <laughs> <laughs> They're a threat. <laughs> Uh, what's your second book? Uh, my second one is the belief that the best thing to get you out of a rut is good gossip. So uh, celebrity biographies I really like, and particularly like career retrospective ones. And the best I've read recently is the Mike Nichols book, who again was like a massive name who I didn't hugely Wait, who know. who is he? Uh, like the director of The Graduate is a good example. Oh, okay, and, like, okay. and so part of the fun of this book is I only knew a couple of these titles, but then you go through and you find out his whole career and you get these interesting rewards when you're doing a book like this. Like you find out things about, say, The Graduate is a good example, uh, about his process, about how like Dustin Hoffman had originally come in to audition for a musical. They got 40 minutes into the audition and then Dustin goes, oh, by the way, I can't sing. <laughs> and Mike would be like, and what the fuck are you doing here? Uh, and then he's like, but that kid had something and then cast him in this film. But then there's uh, like part of the writing process that he talks about in that is putting everything from Dustin Hoffman's perspective and losing huge chunks of his own script because it's if something doesn't happen to our main character, it doesn't happen. So then when you re-watch the film with that knowledge, it like it's like you get a reward. You get to both the two best things, a reward for reading and a break from reading. So you get to like, I'm watching a film, but I'm still kind of reading a book because I'm doing the extracurriculars of this book. <laughs> that sounds like it'd be a great audio book, actually. That's the kind mm. of book I love to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. I've got the Barbara Streisand's giant one. I like knowing someone like going into any of these when I know their name, but not really a lot about them. Like Anna Winter's book was a great example of this. Like I adored that biography because I know the icon and I know none of the details. And then going into that book is 
wild. I know. I love that book as well. But I knew probably a bit more about her than you did. But yeah. Bree and I raved about that book. We're both like Anna Wintour. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Tyrants, yeah. <laughs> and what's your third? My third book. Now, I thought the first two, I'm putting something with like, you know, a bit of literary heft, a bit of, you know, cultural capital, which allows me to go trash. Because I feel like I I read a lot of Trash, and I read a lot of... No, judgment-free zone here. Beautiful. Okay, so I love stories about things going spectacularly wrong. And there is a book I read at the very start of this year called The Song of Spider-Man. And it is about, (laughs) and that's the only time I'm sure Spider-Man has been mentioned on Cool Story. (laughs) It is is about the... Do you remember the Spider-Man musical that was... It's called Turn Off the Dark, and it was this giant like $50 million production that constantly broke performers' wrists because they were supposed to be flying around the audience, a massive flop, horrible problems. It almost like killed off the whole superhero film genre and all of these like events before it ever happened. It was the world's most expensive Broadway musical and it was a giant disaster. You two did the soundtrack for okay, so it. Th- so this is why I could see why you were into this it's or aware of it. Right in the middle of my Venn diagram. Yes, and massive you two fan. You yep. can you can find like the like the performance of the Green Goblin singing A Freak Like Me Needs Company is on Letterman. And you can find this on YouTube and it's one of the worst performances of anything you will ever see. And it's baffling. There is literally like a character introduced in these words, a man made entirely of bees. <laughs> for like a musical costing $50 million, it's insane. But it's also got the best part of this is the book is written by the still bitter co-writer of the musical. And like the writer opens the book talking about all the people who no longer speak to him in the production. Oh, my God. This sounds amazing. And this also just never reached Bridey World. I've never heard about this musical. I also love Disasters. Yeah. It's I've a- never heard about this. Or maybe I just heard Spider-Man and went, not relevant. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't engage any further. There's something about a fiasco that's incredibly compelling. Just how did this fall apart? Oh, and, and also it- when someone's honest about it. Yeah. And so you need someone bitter to be honest about it. Exactly. That's also the other, like secret juice of this. Yeah, it's not a detached third party being like, well, the mistake they made here, it's they didn't listen to me. (laughs) I knew the right answer was here. And you would throw people under the bus. Exactly. It's even like you get sides of like Bono's pretty offside, but The Edge knew what was going on. It's it's good drama and I love good drama. This sounds amazing. Wow, what a great variety of books. I actually think the next big thing is a good get out of a rut reading book. Like it's a book that I read in two nights and like just enjoyed so much and didn't feel like a chore. Actually, not many books feel like a chore for me. When I'm reading friends' books, it can feel like a chore. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but this one didn't at all. And I, I do think it's a, it's so funny and unexpected. Like you can't really tell what's going to happen. I think the characters are really original. The next big thing, what came first, the concept or the amazing title of the book? The title came pretty late. Did and it? Yeah, I was I was very happy. It's, it's the only piece of good marketing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought it was fun. And then when I, um, I just had it as the untitled project thing in my yeah. Google Doc or whatever, the title came pretty late. The idea was sitting around for a long time. So like the, the very nugget of the idea was I was 
first moving down to Melbourne uh, for my first comedy job, like uh, moving away from home for the first time. I had been to South Australia for the Adelaide Fringe Festival and I had been to Melbourne for two days because I found out I was getting this job and thought I should fly in. I flew in, got to Fed Square and went, I don't know anything that happens in Melbourne <laughs> and went back home. And oh my God. That was all my experience. So this drive, I was terrified because all my stuff was in the car, like a little hire car. And, and you drive, so you grew up in Penrith. I grew up in Penrith. And so you're talking about Sydney. You hadn't really been outside of Sydney. Had not left Sydney um, and was driving down to live for eight months during the Melbourne winter on my first ever comedy TV show. And, oh, my God, um, babe, Melbourne winter. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I could feel the depression. Melbourne winter when you don't have any friends. Don't yet. have any yet. friends. <laughs> really did not, did not have, I didn't even have like a proper coat or stuff like that. And so, but I planned this trip, like my, I didn't look up directions. I was just like, aim down, you'll find Melbourne. But I planned the trip for visiting every big thing along the way. Because I thought, uh, oh, if I'm going, I'm going to visit the big Merino and uh, the big Ned Kelly and the big rolling pin of Wodonga and all of these icons. That like got in the back of my mind. And then years later, the, the interesting thing about this book is it has been percolating for so long and changed for so many years that it kind of captures different parts of my own ambition or thoughts on family or worries or things are all in different aspects of the book. Like I've always heard authors talk about like, well, every character is a little bit me. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're, you know, that's not writing characters. And then I get to this as a completed work. I'm like, yeah, no, actually like part of the like conflict in the story are all conflicts I've had internally. And it's like you're playing a, a chess game against yourself. This is something um, Dolly Alderton, well, lots of obviously fiction writers talk about it, but I heard Dolly Alderton speaking last year saying that like what she has revealed the most about herself is actually in her fiction. And mm. she wrote an incredibly revealing memoir of her 20s. She was very honest about like partying, extent of it, jealousies, like who she slept with. Like it's a great memoir, mm. which reveals a lot. And then she said in an interview, actually, I've revealed much deeper things about myself in my fiction, but it's hidden in such a way like people would never quite guess yeah. what is you and what isn't. Absolutely. And it's great like the – the stuff you like, the anecdotes you steal from your own life and then just chuck into someone else's voice or have it happen to someone else. It really helps you like process things in a certain way and like have an argument that you can't cheat your way out of because you have to make it understand. Like, you know how you, you never lose an argument in the shower because you're like the, the whoever you're arguing with in your head falls into every trap you want them to. And then oh you God, I'm in. brilliant in the shower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this one, you can't do that because it's you love both of your characters who are in the argument and you'd be cheating one to let them get oh. away with that. It's a really interesting way to have to process like complex arguments. Like you have to give both people justifiable grounds to stand on and let them have at it. You better say at this point what the book is actually about, because I think I forgot to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's uh, about a small town in like, the wheat belt of Victoria whose industry has dried up off the back of the climate changing and who are seeing towns around them all shut down. And so Norm, our lead character, has the idea to attract tourists by building a big thing in the style of the big pineapple, the big banana, all the sorts. And so this is the story of him and his best friend, Ella, trying to build a big thing and trying to save their town by doing it and 
maybe they find love along the way, Bridie. <laughs> how, yeah, how would you define this genre-wise? I've always found this difficult because they, um, uh, the publishers would like me to say rom-com. And it is a rom-com and it's a romantic comedy. It moves in that way. But I don't really sit in any of those spaces comfortably. I feel like, and it's not a matter of like, I, I do love the genre and I draw on it heavily, but... I like being able to drift and do different things and, you know. Well, rom-com was the first thing that came to my mind, but I was like, no, that's not quite right. And that's not in any derogatory way towards no. you or the rom-com genre, but it did feel like so much more than that, like such a, yeah, kooky little book. It's strange to say, like, I feel like the description of it is it's a comedy about grief. Like the every every part of it is everyone's lost something or is losing something. And part of the nugget of how I wanted this book to read and how I want it to move is that I had read too many very serious dour books about grief, understandably, but like a lot of the, you know, um, these things that are so very small kind of books where everyone's <laughs> sad and angry all the time. And I thought like at the time and during the process of writing this, you know, my high school best friend was slowly passing away and there was a very sad time in our life. Our version of grief was, you know, cry while doing the dishes and all of that. But there was also a large part of it, which is you sit there and you tell jokes to each other or you gossip wildly. <laughs> while... Or you find things funny. Yes. Like there are ridiculous things that happen that you find funny. Exactly. I and went to a funny funeral once. Exactly. Like and it... it shouldn't have been funny, but like so many little things kept happening that are just like one objectively funny like my uncle tripping over the coffin. <laughs> that happened to the priest at my friend's <laughs> yeah, funeral. Yeah. And it was like, we we're like, that's the part of the ceremony she would have loved. Yeah, but it's objectively funny. Also, another aunt of mine started arguing with the priest <laughs> about what she was supposed to read <laughs> when she was doing a reading when she was up there. It's objectively funny. Mm. Everyone's sad and it's objectively funny, but it's also made funnier by the context. Exactly. There is something a little bit inherently funny about the worst thing imaginable happening. Yeah, and comedy's a coping mechanism. Like, this is how we get through these moments. You don't sit and talk about the nature of existence every day. You try and get through your life. And I wanted this to be a story of people, like, facing the kind of civilizational existential threats that we all face in our life, but also living it every day. Not, like... I didn't want people in a book who were living in a book who like, you know, every time they got a chance to sit and think they, you know, there's that old lighted literature of like, if you want an award, describe water. And, you know, <laughs> so someone will sit at the riverside and they'll describe the water and then they'll think about their own life. And you're like, I didn't want that. I wanted people living a joyful life and trying to find joy in a life that is affected by loss. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a, that is a perfect way to describe it that I couldn't properly articulate. And you've written a lot before. You've written comedy sets. You're a TV show writer. That's a very different type. And you do columns mm. as well. You do like everything. It's very annoying. And you're younger <laughs> than me. <laughs> but this is a very, very different type of writing though. Mm. Like what was your process with writing? A, why did you want to write a book first of all? Mm -hmm. And then what was the process like for you? Part of it was challenge. I've always wanted to write a book and I want to see if I could. A lot of the process, I feel like now as I'm heading into the next step, I'm now going to write a school and I'm reading a lot of like books about writing and how do we form ideas and stuff. But I wanted, rightly or wrongly, this to just feel like me and sound like me and not like, not be technically correct. Like, Oh, you want to be unaffected to a degree, right? It's like when you read a lot of those, um, 
American novels, you can tell who's got an MBA. Exactly. And, and there's like a very specific MBA voice. And of course, there's that impulse or that tendency. You don't want your voice sullied, but everyone also needs to be taught something to a degree. Yeah, exactly. And like, I do have my my backing and background in this, but then just finding this form and also trying not to lean on things that would be too easy. Part of what I really liked about forming the book was making it a book about hope because comedically, cynicism's funnier and it's so easy True. to be cynical. And so like every part of this, like particularly when you're writing a satire about Australia, it is so easy to make it negative and and just bitter and caustic. And I wanted to avoid that. I wanted to make it like a lot of the theme of this book is that hope is an active choice, that like you have to choose and work hard to make something hopeful. And I want to reflect that in the writing that like anytime my impulse was to have something horrible happen or to have it like there used to be entire plot lines that were just political satire and they existed there because that's easy for me. That's the area where I feel comfortable, where I have a lot of experience. And then ripping that away and being like, you have to allow yourself to feel things and have the vulnerability of having pages about just emotional like growth and development. Without a punchline. Without a punchline. Which line. is so, so easy to put in. I also think it's easy in your first book and in a first novel to like – show how clever you are and how mm. empathetic you are and like all of a sudden have characters making like grand sweeping political statements out of nowhere yes and then going back to their usual life which is a trap so many could fall into myself included that you didn't in this book but now you're saying you had to take all that out yeah I fell into the <laughs> trap and then I removed the trap <laughs> I think that's really interesting like it's a hard balance to get because you want to feel comfortable in these moments and, you know particularly when you're writing your first book it's frightening but then a lot of it was like like from a practical standpoint it was making this world real and make it feel real to me like and the big problem with this is like I'm not a hugely visual thinker I'm a very very lacking in visual thought like you know that Oh that, you're one of those people who when you read a book you don't picture the scene I have no movie oh in my, my head Oh my god no movie and and I All I'd that's like... in my head is a freaking movie <laughs> <laughs> But okay, there's that old thing of like the the how clearly can you picture an apple and stuff and I don't have that at all I'm not one of those people I see a perfect apple right there <laughs> just so you know <laughs> I have the idea of an apple I get what an apple is it's okay we can move on <laughs> <laughs> but like that was like I remember uh, one of our friends found me with like I was I had a draft of the book on me and I left it at the table at a pub as I went to grab a drink and it had a post-it note on the draft that said what do things look like? Because <laughs> it was of no importance to me and I had to like go and make the active choice to do that. So that's one of the interesting things that I had to draw on for it. And moving from the TV world where I can just, particularly in the stuff I work on, on shows like Gruen or like The Weekly with Charlie Pickering or shows like that, you draw on external sources. Like you pull in like, here's an ad and we're going to talk about this ad or I'm going to pull this apart or here's a bit of news that I can use as my launching point. To have to be your own engine is a very different beast and having to like the drive the story where there's like an integrity that you have to keep which you'd know well of like you can't just have characters make inexplicable bad choices even yeah. though like it's tempting to be like well they just do this and whatever like you have to give them a reason for it but it's it makes it harder as a plot device or like every other chapter you just want someone to walk in and be like did I mention there's a dragon over there? Can you go fight that or something? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. That is the difficult part to write. And down on the ultra, ultra, ultra practical level, 
you have a kid, Mm -hmm. you have like an insanely busy job, well, multiple jobs. What was your approach to timing? Like, how did you sit down and write it? How did you carve out the time? Did you tell yourself ahead of time when you were going to write? Like, when did you write? Did you give yourself, I've got to hit 2000 words? Like, how did you actually do that part? It went in stages. There was a bit of, um, particularly early on, there was this idea that all progress is progress. It doesn't matter if you hit a couple of hundred words. If you get 15 minutes, um, that will do. And a lot of this was written either, you know, laptop on my my lap at the end of the day at like between 11 p.m. and midnight, just getting out whatever else can happen. Or like there was a lot of times where I'm lying with my daughter on a notes app and I have an idea and go from there. And then I was lucky enough to just a break in TV world and Gracie Sign Daycare that I would have chunks of the day. Like I would have the day to actually focus on this. This is particularly getting towards the later stage yeah. of writing when the second and third drafts. And I that was when the moment I realized like, I love doing this. I really like book writing that having, being able to sit with something is so much of what I do. Uh, you start your process Thursday, midday in a meeting Tuesday, it gets filmed, and Wednesday night, it goes out to a million people. So that is the timeline I am used to to and the timeline I've worked on for a decade. To have something that I can sit and slowly craft was such a privilege, and I didn't want to rush the process. Like I've had things before where you just need to do 4,000 words a day and get them done and get them out. But I found that whenever I try and give myself a word goal, I write to the word. It's like doing an essay at university. You start putting in extra words totally. that you know are pointless. Oh, my God, yes, exactly. My real trick was I would always leave it. I can't even remember who I took this idea from, but you write right up until one scene before you don't know what will go happen. So, like, uh, you know, you know that they're going to have this conversation and then they're going to go to the shops. You write right up until the end of the conversation and that's where you end your day because it means you don't start your next day with a what happens now. Like it's so easy to- Such a good tip. I try to do that as well, but it is something I've fallen into before where you write to the end of your idea and then you open it up the next day, next writing day, you're just like, I've got no idea what's happening. It's so much easier to give up. Yeah, absolutely. And you're like, oh, Clean the know. house. Go clean the house. I got in this annoying habit when I was doing this as well. When I didn't have any idea, I'd go for a long run. And I'm not a natural runner, you know this, but like I'd go for a long run and then it would always be, by the time I get to the end of it, you know, you have like- an hour and a half where you're just in your own head. And by the time you get to the end, you have some idea of something to do next. But then that became my solution to writer's block. (laughs) So I'd have like a bad day at the laptop and then be like, oh, now I have to go run for a bunch of kilometers (laughs) to try and get out of this. I think there's a part of you that loves to suffer sometimes. I think so, yeah. Or punish yourself. Miranda talks about this a lot, that I don't see problems as things that have solutions. (laughs) I see problems as things I should endure. (laughs) And also in one of the main characters in this book is Aboriginal. Mm -hmm. And it is written in such an original way from a white person. Like I've never seen a white person write an Aboriginal character that wasn't just there for like a plot device (laughs) or to prove something. Like I I don't think I've read a white person write an Aboriginal character where them being Aboriginal is just like an ordinary fact of their life Mm. and not like, you know, the source of all sorrow or political point making. Were you very conscious in your approach to this, that you have this Aboriginal character, that's just a fact about them, but then the story goes on? Absolutely. A lot of that. A lot of thought went into that, a lot of like, re- like both life experience and research in these. But there is a habit in white writing of Aboriginal characters where 
they're questioning or struggling with their Aboriginality or wondering how they walk into worlds. And I have never met an Aboriginal person with that problem. <laughs> I have never in my life been like, what does it mean? Who am I? I've never met that in my life. And you're, ma- and we, we should say that you're married to an, uh, an Aboriginal woman and you're the father of it. Yeah, so you've exactly. met a lot, of, yeah. a lot of people. And um, But a lot of it was just being true to life, Ed, like, like um, you know, like there's there's a story in there of um one of my favorite parts of the book is Ella and her grandmother sitting at her mother's grave. That came from an actual event that I had with uh, Miranda's family, which is a regular event for them, which is at on holidays and things you go and visit your your family's grave sites and you sit and you put up like you put up chairs and you have a yard. You go chat and. That was fascinating to me as something that is complete. Like my family's got a bit of like, when you're gone, we don't speak of you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where you are. You're just, you're just not here anymore. Don't worry about it. Other than being a teenager, I haven't, I don't go to ceremony. uh, I don't go to cemeteries unless. Oh my God. Other than being a teenager. What a rite of passage for teenagers who live like out in the outer suburbs or in country towns. Why do we love drinking in cemeteries? <laughs> it's just cool. Drinking with the skeletons. That's sick. <laughs> yeah, sorry, but other but, than being... But other than that, I'd like, I just avoid the area, honestly. And that, um, like, being a book about grief, it was interesting to me to find this practice that talks, like, understands death beyond, like, someone's not out of your life because they're physically gone from your life, but you also need to go and make the effort to keep them a part of it. And that was fascinating to me. That was something I had I had never um, experienced before. And I, I think, like, to bring that as an example, I thought that's a good way to show a cultural difference without it being a cultural question, without it being a, like, what does it mean to be this? Because And also they're not being self-conscious about it. They're like, wow, now we're going to do this thing that is only specific to our culture because you're, they they think it's just ordinary. Now yeah. we're going to do this thing that we've always done and it's not worth commenting on really that I, we're doing it. I think there was a lot as well of understanding what stories aren't mine to tell. Like even when like I would do consult, uh, consultation, I would t- uh, do a lot of research and stuff like this, like make sure I'm on solid ground. But then there's reasons like we never have characters going to like the – song lines or like the like what the specifics of any any part of this area like that I want to have them living now and living their lives but I didn't want to be telling stories that weren't mine to tell like to regurgitate some story that I had looked up and taken from someone else it just didn't feel right to me so it was also imp- I imagine that it would not have gone down well in your household no it wouldn't have gone <laughs> super well and like and like um Miranda was good and we had other age but like Miranda was particularly good of just doing little changes of language like just doing little things of like you know I have my own ears but then she'd be like that doesn't quite sound true or that doesn't and it was mostly like you know no, we wouldn't use this slang term here. We'd use it here and you'd more phrase it this way or you'd reverse the sentence or something like the very small technical levels of that. She was also very good at being like giving me the freedom to say like as long as you're representing the character thoughtfully and carefully and with respect, it's going to be okay. Like I think a lot totally. of- Totally. She's a, allowed to be annoying at times. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's annoying. <laughs> a lot of people fall into that trap, like white, white rise fall into that trap of putting everyone on a pedestal yeah, totally. and making them magical and mysterious. And, and like, with and with a perfect halo. Exactly. Around them. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's that wasn't in here. She was a very very three dimensional character, as was her family. I actually loved her dad. Her dad might have been my my favorite character in this. I kind of love him. Yeah. <laughs> was there anyone? We're almost done, but my one last mm-hmm. question, which is like slightly gossipy, was there anyone who you were worried about them reading this? Well, that's an interesting question. Um. 
Huh. Maybe not. Because it's some, sometimes in books you can like um, have a slight go at someone or put in someone's most annoying trait and then you think, are they going to recognize that I've used them in this book? Oh, okay. No, I, I didn't have too much of that. I put in a lot of my own annoying traits, I would say. Because <laughs> um, my, my line is more like I'm, I'm worried about everyone and no one. Like, like I've done the best I can and like you freak out whenever anyone's looking at the book. But there wasn't anything I left in that was too um, – to like right on the nose. There is like, I was worried about more than anything, like the ending making sense and like under, people getting the point I'm trying to make with it and like without putting spoilers in it. It's like, it might not be what you would expect coming into the book that where where we would end up. Yes, it was unexpected, but also it didn't feel untrue. Yeah. Like it did feel natural that this is where it ended up, but also I did not see it coming. Yeah, exactly. And there was... <laughs> I spoke to someone when I was doing a signing who said, like, I haven't had a chance to read the whole book yet. I read the first chapter. I flicked to the end to see what the big thing was. I am interested to see how you get there. <laughs> and I thought, like, that's that's what I was worried about. Like, the, if you just do that jump, it's going to be quite a jump. And making sure that rang true was very important for me. So that was more my worry. And then you have that other side worry of – um is it saccharine? Is it like, does this feel authentic? Like I often feel like I don't necessarily think in the way of everyone else or like <laughs> I might operate on a different wavelength sometimes. And so to just transmit that idea to make sure you're making sense to proper human beings is always important to me. No, you pulled it off. You absolutely <laughs> pulled it off. And the ending of your book is a good place to end the podcast. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, except this week with James Colley. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was recorded on Gadigal land, sovereignty was never ceded, and produced by the very giggly Sam Devonport. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at Cool Story, Brie Bridie, or wherever you get your podcast, and please leave your reviews. We love to read them. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.